Let's pray together and we'll get started. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this incredible letter which has revealed to us much about the church, its struggles, but also its victory. Tonight we see the victory. So Lord, uh, keep us on track. Don't let us get sidetracked or dissuaded, distracted or deceived, uh, but keep us on track. Tonight I ask you again, open our minds to understand the scriptures. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, chapter 12 was about the body and the gifts that make the body the body. That's what the 12 was. I want, you to, I want you to see where he's going as he closes. The body is the body of Christ. And the gifts that make the body the body was chapter 12. Chapter 13 was about the love that makes the gifts work. If you got the gifts and you don't have love, it's meaningless. Chapter 14 revealed the greatest goal, which is love, and the greatest gift, which is to prophesy. What's that mean? The Why would that be the greatest gift? Because the greatest gift gives life. To prophesy is to sell, tell somebody about God. But chapter 15 tonight actually reveals the central theme to Christianity. Um, and I wonder, I always wonder these questions. If I poll the audience in a private piece of paper and say, write down the one thing that you consider the central theme of Christianity. Wonder how many different answers I'd get in a group of uh, 150 people. A lot, probably. Well, tonight, he reveals what I consider the central theme of Christianity and the gift that came to man through Jesus Christ. We've been talking about the gifts that God gave to us so that we can glorify him and reveal him to the world. But tonight, we're going to talk about the central theme of Christianity and the gift that came to man through a man named Jesus Christ. And here it is. What gift did he give us? The resurrection of the dead. Now go ahead, somebody top that. I'll wait a minute. The resurrection of the dead. That's what this chapter is going to be about. What did you think the good news was anyway? If anybody in the room's got good news more than the resurrection of the dead, I'd like to hear it. See, this is it. This is it. All right, let's get started. Verse 1. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you. If. Oh, don't you hate it when somebody puts an if in there? It is this good news that saves you. If you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. So I'm going to ask you a question when I read that. What if you don't continue to believe the good news? Is that possible? Now, some people want to debate that's not even possible. I debate that it is possible, which is why he wrote it in here. If it were not possible, why does he write it? Why does he put it in here? If it's impossible to do, now some of you think, it is the good news that saves you. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the resurrection of the dead through the blood of Christ, forgiveness of sins, atonement, sacrifice, all that, 
He says, it's the good news that saves you if. That's a conditional statement. If you continue to believe the message. What if you don't? Now, some people say, well, you can't not continue. Well, I've met a whole lot of people that sure look like they can not continue. So what about that? Paul is using his gift to prophesy, to prophesy good news. He's got a gift. God gave him a gift. The gift to communicate understandably the good news. And he's doing it. He's doing it. He's still doing it. You know, tonight he's doing it. He's doing it and he's not here. He's using the gift to prophesy. Everyone loves good news, right? The word gospel means what? Good news. Heralding good news. The word gospel means that. So everybody loves good news, so everybody loves the gospel, right? No. It doesn't make sense, does it? If everybody, don't you like good news? I like good news. If somebody comes to you and says, I got good news, bad news, which one you want first? It's according to who it is. If it's a gloom and doom guy, I don't want either. I think it's a trick. If it's good news, everybody likes it, right? Well, it's only good news if you believe it. Paul says it's only good news if you believe it and continue to believe it. Why? Because it's bad news. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I am convinced. If you reject the good news, if you reject the gospel, the good news becomes bad news. There's no neutral. If you reject the gospel, the good news to me would become bad news to you, worthy of op opposition. You would consider my good news worthy of, op of your opposition. No one is neutral. Verse 3. I passed on to you what was most important. <clears throat> wonder what that is. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. So what did Jesus give Paul that Paul gave us? Well, you could say good news, but what specifically? I passed on to you what was most important and what was passed on to me. Here it comes. Here it comes. Christ died for our sins. Just as the scripture said, he was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day. Just as the scripture said, he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. The good news came to Paul from Christ himself. Now this sets Paul apart from many people. The good news came to Paul from Jesus personally. Thus his calling as an apostle specifically to the Gentile. But when I say that, do you think Paul didn't have influence in the Jews? I mean, he had an incredible influence among Jews. But what's his calling? His calling is to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. <clears throat> but I want you to notice the sequence of this good news of Paul in the letter to Corinth. I listed eight things. They're the next eight items. And, and I just pulled them out in order. Look at the sequence of the good news. Number one, Christ died for our sins. And he adds, as prophesied by the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. He didn't just die. 
He didn't just die. That'd be something else. He died for us. For our sins. Number two, he was buried. That's important. He died. He was buried. Number three, he raised from the dead on the third day. As prophesied by the scriptures. He brings that up again. Read it. It's in there. He died for our sins. He was buried in the ground. And he rose on the third day. Just as the scriptures have said. Number four. He was seen by Peter. And then by the twelve. Now. Matthias would have replaced Judas by then. If you're wondering how they got back to twelve. Because Judas hanged himself. How'd they get twelve? He says he was seen by Peter and then the 12. So Matthias has joined the 11. Now they got 12 again. They all see him. How do they see him? As a ghost? No. He's in a resurrected human flesh. A superhuman flesh, but a human flesh. All right? How do you know that? He says, touch me. I'm not a ghost. Give me some food. You know? At the same time, here's the mystery. Here's the mystery. At the same time, he can eat fish and you can touch him and touch his hands he walked through a closed door. I look forward to that. <laughs> I think getting around would be a whole lot easier. And then after that, what? He was seen by more than 500 followers at one time. How did it like been in that meeting? More than 500 at one time. What's he doing here? He's validating the witnesses. Number six. He was seen by James. Now, I'm going to get into this tonight. There's a truckload of Jameses around. Okay? I wish they'd have used last names and even middle initials. But they didn't. So, who is he? Now, I'm going to tell you. I believe he is the brother of Jesus. Okay? Stay with me. I'll communicate the details of that in a minute. He was seen by James. And number seven... Then he was seen again by all the apostles. And finally, last but not least, here's Paul writing this letter. Finally, on the Damascus Road, Paul said, I saw him. Now there's eight core evidences and witnesses of who Jesus is. Now, before we move on, the encounter between James and Jesus I found to be very unique. Here's why. What did Jesus say to James when he met him? Nobody knows. It's not recorded. In fact, what I just read to you is it. It's the only written down evidence that Jesus specifically reveals himself to James, his half-brother. Are you understanding the half-brother part? James's mother, we believe, us Protestants believe, is Mary. Okay? The, the Catholics believe something else. But Protestants believe that Mary was James's mother and Jesus' mother, but obviously we believe Jesus' daddy is not Joseph. But James's daddy more than likely was Joseph. So he'd be a half-brother. We can't even be sure, so I need to say that, that this James is the brother of Jesus. However, it is widely, when you put it all in context in every application, it's widely believed that he is. But we can be sure that this guy, this James, that Jesus himself 
Paul says, personally encountered Jesus. There weren't a whole lot of people that did other than that 500 crowd. If you're outside of that 500 crowd, there weren't a whole lot of people that met the resurrected physical body Jesus Christ. Right? A whole lot of us have met the Holy Spirit resurrected Jesus Christ, but not the physical body resurrected Jesus Christ. So what about this James? Here's the deal. He became the leader of the Jerusalem church. Now that gives some credence to the fact that he was more than likely Jesus' half-brother. Let me give you two examples of that, just so we can dive in. I like diving in. First is when Peter was freed from prison by an angel. I'm not going to read to you the story. I assume you know the story. An angel lets him loose, and he, and he finally kind of comes to his consciousness and finds himself at a door, knocking on the door, and his name's, the girl's name's Rhoda, I believe, and they, let, they finally let him in, and here's what happens, Acts 12, 17. He motioned for them to be quiet. Well, why do you need to be quiet? I've just broke out of jail, hush up, you know, before they find out I'm over here. He motioned them to be quiet and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison, and what's he say in the middle of this great escape? Tell James and the other brothers what happened. Now, I'm going to tell you what that tells me is James in the leadership column has moved toward the top. Tell James and the other brothers what's happened. Now, this James is not listed with the 12. So when it says he was seen by the 12, that's not this James. Okay, that's another couple of Jameses. I told you, there's a lot of Jameses. Not, that's not this one. This James, the brother of Jesus, is listed as having a ministry and also being the leader, it looks like, of all of them. I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 4. Paul's argument about the church providing for their needs. Look at what Paul says. Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Don't we have the right to bring Christian wife with us as the other disciples and the Lord's brothers do? As Peter does? Now he separates. So if you're thinking brothers means Peter, Andrew, James, and John. No, because he's listing Peter separately. So when he says brother, he means brother. My brother James. Acts 15. This one's even more clear. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they finished, who stands up? Now, now, by the way, this is called the Jerusalem Council. And this Jerusalem Council, council is the, the Christian leaders of that day having to make a very strategic decision about should the Gentiles become Jews to become Jesus followers. This is a big deal. It was dividing the church. So who stands up? Paul and Barnabas make their plea to the council in Jerusalem. And who stands up? When they had finished, James stood. That tells you he's got some authority. Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. It's not about what he says. It's about that he has become the spokesman of this group. 
the brother of Jesus. Now, let me try to make some sense of this. There were Peter, Andrew, James, and John. There's a couple of brothers in the 12. Peter's brother is Andrew. James' his brother, different James, is John. In fact, if you look at James, one of the 12, he is one of the sons of, anybody want to guess? Zebedee. He's the sons of Zebedee. But there's another James. He's the son of Alphaeus. Just in case you're not confused totally yet. James the Apostle, okay, he would be the brother of John. The Apostle had already been killed by Herod by the time this event in Acts chapter 15 is taking place. So John, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John, his brother's name is James. He was one of the twelve. Remember, they were the two guys in a fishing boat when they got to calling. He's been murdered by King Herod by the time Acts 5 happens. So the guy standing up in the Jerusalem council is not the brother of John, not the brother of Apostle John. He's dead. So I say all of that to come to this conclusion. Jesus had an inner circle. There were three guys that went with him in places nobody else went. Peter, James, and John. But this James of the Peter, James, and John group is not his half-brother. It's James, the brother of John the Apostle. Y'all are giving me that look. <laughs> now, here's the reason I say it. Here's the reason I went through all that. Do you know? Do you know that the Bible specifically says, I didn't put it in your notes, but in, in, in uh, John chapter 7, verse 5, if you want to write it down, the Bible specifically says that his brothers did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. They did not believe. Now, this guy's come a long way. This James, he's gone from not believing Jesus was the real deal to now he is leader in the Jerusalem council after the resurrection. Now, I smile when I say that because it was years ago and I was preaching and I believe, I don't know, it was years ago. We weren't over here in this building. And I said something about that in the sermon. I said something about, do you know that, you know, Jesus' own brothers didn't believe he was the Messiah? Well, it was like a week after that and there was a guy, I'm not going to tell you his name, he comes to me, he's angry. He thinks I'm an apostate, I think. He says, that's not in the Bible. And I said, yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. I was really happy it was in the Bible. <laughs> he never did apologize either. They never brought it up again after he went and looked at John 7, 5. So what's the point? His own, if you think it was easy to believe in Jesus, you think it came natural? The brothers in his own house weren't getting it until the resurrection. Ladies and gentlemen, this changes everything. When you see somebody walk out of a grave, you will notice. 
You just go on to a funeral and watch it happen. Tell me you won't call me. <laughs> you will. You'll call the Anderson News. You'll call everybody. Why? Because it don't happen. But it did happen. After Paul's conversion, he, Paul, met with James, the other James, in Jerusalem. And, and I want you to, I want you, to, I don't know why this hit me. There's two guys mentioned in those eight items, two guys mentioned that met Jesus specifically. Well, Peter did too. But, but Paul and James had personal encounters with Jesus after the resurrection. And then, then Paul meets James at the Jerusalem council. Can you tell me what they would have had to talk about? What was it like for you? Well, what was it like for you? Well, he blinded me. I couldn't see for days. You know, it, you know, they both had met the risen Christ. Both of them. And that didn't happen to a lot of people. Acts 21, 18. The next day, Paul went with us to meet James. And all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. Now, with all of that said, all of these men, the 12 apostles, except John. So let's say 11 we're going to die as martyrs because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every one of these people that met Jesus. Are you with me? Every one of these people that met the resurrected Christ, except the apostle John, was, were going to die as martyrs because they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you die for something that wasn't true? But they would not deny the one that had encountered, they had encountered after the resurrection. The resurrection event was so powerful that they would die before they would recant. Here's why. Here's why. The resurrection changed everything. And let me prove it. If you're in this room tonight and you truly believe in the resurrection, can you tell me why you'd be afraid to die? Use your logic side of your brain not your emotion side of your brain. If you truly believe in the resurrection, why would you be afraid to die? Somebody would say to me, because it hurts. <laughs> okay, except for that. You see, the point is, it changes everything. When you believe in the resurrection, then death is just the doorway into the presence of Christ. It changes everything. Finally, Paul announces that Jesus appeared to him last. Last. How would you like to be last? Well, I'm going to tell you what. In this case, it would be grand. Okay? And he humbly considers himself to be the least of the apostles. Why? Because he still bears the shame of persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Verse 8. <clears throat> last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time. <laughs> Paul says, I was too late. I also saw him. I saw Jesus. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. What is an apostle, by the way? What's the difference between an apostle and a disciple? An apostle is someone specifically called out by God and sent out by God. Those 12 including Matthias after Judas is gone, including 
uh, Paul, which would make it 13, you can call them apostles. They had been called out by God, separated by God. They would have had to have spent time, met the Christ to meet the criteria, and set out by Christ. So what's a disciple? Followers of Jesus. I hope you're a disciple. I'm a disciple. I'm a follower of Christ. That's what that disciple means. Now sometimes you'll read the word disciples in reference to what we know to be apostles. Well, they're both. The apostles can be disciples, but that doesn't mean disciples can be apostles. You with me? And we'll start, if you're not, we'll talk about James again. <laughs> I thought so. I figured the guilt is gone. But the shame of his own deception haunts him. But victory and freedom is announced in the very next verse. Verse 10. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me. And not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they, the other apostles, preach. For we all preach the same message you have already believed. Can we say that today? Can we sit in this room tonight and say, whatever I am now, it is all because God has poured out his special favor on me. Amen? It was Paul's past. Here's a teaching moment right here. It was Paul's past. Those years of deception and persecuting the church that led him to become such a powerful leader. He was the last called, but quite frankly, many people might say he made laps around the rest of them afterwards. Why? Because he carried such a burden of the fact that much of his years were spent persecuting the Savior that he now followed. And that became, did that become a, uh, an anchor to slow him down? No, no, no. The opposite. It became his motivation. It became that in, which inspired him. It was Paul's past that made him, he said, I've worked harder than any of the apostles. Can God use your terrible past? Church, can he use your terrible past? Can he use my terrible past? Yes. In fact, I'm convinced he specializes in it. One of the scriptures I remember memorizing when I left the public uh, secular job and came to the church is this. God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak to shame the strong, lest no man would ever boast before him. God chooses the foolish things. If you were going to be God or you were going to be Jesus and you were going to pick somebody to be the messenger of the Gentile, would you pick somebody who persecuted the church? I doubt it. But God doesn't think like that, does he? You know, he said, somebody find me a scoundrel. <laughs> well, there's a Saul guy over here. He's a scoundrel. Okay, we'll take him. Now, we make light of that, but I'm going to tell you, this is the reality of our God. God chooses the foolish things of the world. Who in the world would pick Paul? God said, I will. Because he will display his great power, love, and mercy through a scoundrel. It shows up when they're scoundrels. It might show up a little bit when they're good people. 
seemingly good people, but when he transforms a scoundrel, it shows up big time. We all have the same message. I, I think about what Paul said, doesn't matter what I preach or what they preach, because we're all preaching the same thing. I think about today, we all have the same message, just a different perspective, a different past that allows us to deliver the same message to different people. I've often considered this as I write and as I preach. I'll be sitting at my desk, I shut the door, and I try to just focus on the Word of God. And, and I, as I write and preach, I'm thinking, I am preaching, I am writing nothing new. Nothing. In fact, sometimes it grips me that what I am about to say for this coming Sunday, for example, there's not nothing new in there. There's nothing. It's the same message they've been preaching for 2,000 years. Same thing. Oh, I use a little different words, maybe a different story, different illustration, different application. My experience has been flowing through the story, but only because that's the only experience I know is mine. But it's the same gospel. We haven't changed anything. We're still using the same book. Right? Anybody change the book? We haven't changed the book. It's the same book. We're reaching the same message, the message of Christ. Now, now, now let's turn the page here. The central theme of chapter 15 and the core of this good news is the resurrection. Here we go, verse 12. But tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there's no resurrection of the dead? So what's happening in Corinth? There must be some people who are kind of acting like Sadducees, right? They, be, they don't believe in a spiritual realm. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in something after this life. But if we're preaching, Paul's using logic. If we're preaching that Christ was resurrected from the dead, then why are you some of you church people saying there's no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. Let me put it another way. Can you be a Christian, a believer, a follower of Christ and not believe in the resurrection? Don't answer, just think. Can you be a Christian? Can you be a believer, a follower of Jesus and refuse the fundamental doctrine that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Now, now somebody would say, but you know, we're saved by grace through faith. But faith is in something. I keep saying that over and over because I think some people think faith is an intellectual acknowledgement. Yeah, there's a God. Yeah, there's a God. I'm saved. There's a God. Right before I die. Yeah, there's a God. I have faith. There's a God. If you think that's what faith is, somebody has already got a hold of you. That little demon that bites like a snake. Because that's not faith. Faith is in something. It's not just believing nothing. It's not just believing the existence of a God. It's believing something. It's believing the very Word of God that reveals God. And the Word of God, central to the Word of God, is the resurrection of the dead. It's central. You can't, well, I believe that there was a Jesus. I just don't believe there's a resurrection. Then you don't know who Jesus is. You've got no clue who Jesus is. You can't separate them. Do you think Jesus did it, but no one else can? Let's take it a second level. 
Somebody would say to me, yeah, you know, okay, okay, you got me, preacher. I believe there was a man named Jesus, son of God, in human flesh, and you know what? Yep, he rose from the dead. But I don't think anybody else is going to do it. Then you're not getting it. Can somebody tell me why God would send his son to the earth to die and raise from the ground for no purpose? Why in the world would he do it? He was in heaven with God before creation. Is he God just mean? Is he just mean? Get down there and die. He sent his son to the cross to die and go in the ground so you could get out of the ground. And if Jesus rose, it was only so you can. He didn't need a resurrection. We did. So if you think, well, I believe he did it, but anybody else going to do it, you're still not getting it. The day I stopped believing in the resurrection, Jesus's and mine, is the day I stopped preaching. Because guess what? What's the point? What's the point? Somebody said, well, they'll keep paying you. <laughs> Y'all think that's more funny than I do. <laughs> First Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ has not been raised, all right, here we go. If Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. So if you say you got faith, but you don't believe in the resurrection, it's useless. It's useless. And we apostles would be lying about God. If there is no resurrection, I'm a liar. Right? Because I've told you there is. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are, what's the next word? Lost. Guess what that means? Life is meaningless. What was the point of the cross anyway? It was to make a way in and out of the grave into the grave by jesus was the payment for sin out of the grave by jesus and then by us is the victory over death which was the curse that finds its origin in satan's deception if there is no resurrection of jesus then we're all still guilty enemies of god waiting judgment and wrath if there is no resurrection where's the apostle paul today <laughs> if there's no resurrection where's he at is he lost and when i say resurrection i am specifically talking about a bodily resurrection not a casper the friendly ghost event a bodily resurrection if there is not a bodily resurrection then all this life is meaningless and christians should be pitied above all others because they have lived their whole life with a false hope notice i said if why verse 19 and if our hope in christ is only for this life we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world this is where faith comes in and this is the power of the spirit-filled church what we believe you know what separates us from everybody else on the planet we believe what we believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
To us, the resurrection is a non-negotiable fact. It is not for debate. If you don't like it, I will try to convince you to a point, and then I will walk away from you. And that's the trick. I will do my best to tell you that you don't have to spend eternity in a hole in the ground. But if you refuse to believe, it'll be on you. Verse 20. But in fact, but in fact. <laughs> By the way, did I tell you he met Jesus? Okay. And when did he meet Jesus? Jesus was in a resurrected body. He saw him. He saw him. He talked to him. He saw his glory so powerful that it blinded him. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man. Please don't miss this, church. What is Paul saying? Jesus died. And death entered planet Earth, entered the kingdoms of men through one guy. One guy. Stay with me. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man. We're not talking about Jesus. Not now. Who was the man he came that death entered through? Adam. Now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. He's referred to as the last Adam or the second Adam. He's Jesus. Just as everyone dies, because we all belong to Adam, in case you thought I was making that up, Everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Jesus walked out of the grave, and so will I. And that's a fact. That's a fact. But you know what? I believe that with all my heart, but I can't believe that for you. And you can't believe that for me. You can't believe it for your kids. You can't believe it for your mom and your daddy. But I'm going to tell you I believe it. Jesus walked out of the grave. Do you realize how big this is? And I'm going to walk out of the grave too. Maybe. Maybe I don't have to go in one. Death entered mankind through one man, Adam. And now one man, Jesus, has walked out of the grave, and I will too. This is why, let, let me take a side note. This is why evolution is so destruction. This is why evolution is so destructive. This is why evolution is so destructive. Why? Because if you allow evolution to creep into church theology, why do people die? Come on, why do people die? Oh, uh, I don't know, son. Why do people die? See, I know why people die. Because sin brought death to Adam, and everyone from Adam is dead or dying. But there's another Adam. There's a do-over. Y'all didn't notice. There's a do-over. There's another whole family rising out from the kingdoms of men. They're called the kingdom of God. And it's a do-over. Now, evolution does what to that? It tries to replace the origin of man with some chance random processes. And it tries to tell Christians that you're a simpleton until you agree to go along. Go along with what? Can I just tell you the truth? If you believe in evolution, you ought to go home. Because you know what? If you believe in evolution, then what in the world would make you think there's a resurrection from the dead? 
What in the world makes you think that you're going to rise from the dead? If, if you came here because some stars collided somewhere in outer space, what in the world, if there's no beginning, you think magically there's going to be an end? You can't connect these dots. They don't connect. It's apostasy. It's a lie. Amazingly enough, how many generations fell for the Charles Darwin junk? And now the, the bright and shining star is this guy Stephen Hawking. And Stephen Hawking tells the world, watch it. Go, go to YouTube. Just type it in. Stephen Hawking, everybody is amazed at his intellectual. He's the Einstein of today. Then you know what he says? The theory of evolution is untenable. It's impossible. Well, if you're the smartest guy in the world, why didn't you say that 100 years ago? You know, why didn't you say that when he was telling the lie? You know what he says now? It's untenable. It had, life had to have come from, you know, I've said it before, ice crystals from other planets or aliens delivered it personally. And you think I have faith. Because, you, see, he is smart. Stephen Hawkins is smart. Hawking, not Hawkins. Hawking, he is smart. He's smart enough to know that what Charles Darwin said is impossible. But the problem is the seed's already been planted. The deception's already produced generations of those who have died with a lie in their head. Jesus walked out of the grave. By the way, I said, and so will I. We might be the generation that will never actually enter the grave because of the coming rapture. I'm still counting on that. I probably will until I take that last breath. Do you believe this fact that the church is the harvest and Jesus was the seed that was planted to produce the harvest? Verse 23. There is an order to this resurrection. Stay with me. This is really good. This is the good part. There is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. And then all who belong to Christ will be raised. When? 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 Don't miss it. You know this is this clear? All right? He, Christ was raised and he's the first of a harvest. And then when Christ, those who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Whoa, that causes me to think. Okay? When he comes back, Jesus himself has revealed this to Paul. The one that rose from the dead is revealing his plan to raise us, our physical bodies, from the dead. Have you ever noticed how succinctly 1 Corinthians matches 1 Thessalonians? Because in 1 Corinthians, what happens? There is an order to the resurrection. Please don't miss it. There's an order. There's a resurrection from the dead. Here's an order. Jesus goes first. Check. Okay? Then those who are in Christ, those who belong to Christ, are going to be raised, but not until he comes back. Okay. So, so let me set it up. Let's say it's your great-great-grandparents, and they're believers. They're Jesus followers. They've been born again of the water, born of the Spirit. And Jesus hasn't come back, back yet. Where are they? Their body is in the ground somewhere. Where's their soul? If they are in Christ, their soul is in the presence of God. 
but their physical body, their physical body is in the ground. Now, let me, with that said, let me read this again. But there's an order to the resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised, but not until he comes back. Now, now I told you there, there's a connection between 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. Now, now 1 Thessalonians is going to get into some detail. Verse 13. Now, dear brothers and sisters, who does that mean? That's church people. We want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. Well, if you wanted to know what happened to your great-grandmother, here we go. We want you to know what happened to believers who have died. Believers. Unbelievers, sorry about your luck. Believers who have died, where are they? So you'll not grieve like people who have no hope. Oh, my great-grandparents, they're gone. No, you're not going to grieve like people who have no hope. Why? For since we believe... Here it comes. Who's the first of the harvest? Since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, remember, check. We also believe, here comes the second check. <clears throat> we also believe that when Jesus returns, what's going to happen? Come on, stay with me. When Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Who's he bringing back with him when he comes? He's bringing the souls of believers who have died since his resurrection. Granny's coming home. If souls of believers, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Well, wait a minute. I thought you said, Terry, their bodies are in the ground. They are. Why do you think they're coming back here? Why? Why do you think they'd want to come back here? They've been in heaven with Christ. Why do you think they want to come back here? Because it's not done yet. It's not complete yet. Verse 15. We tell you this directly from the Lord. Who told Paul? Jesus. What? We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And first, remember up here, go up here, it says there's an order to the resurrection. There's an order. First, what's the order? First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Well, who's rising from their graves? The dead bodies, the physical flesh turned to dust, dead bodies in those graves are going to rise to meet their souls, their spirits that are returning. And they're going to be joined together in the clouds into eternal flesh. Let me read it. Now, that's this first. Hang on. Some of y'all still breathing people want to hear the next part. <laughs> and then together with them. Then. That's secondly. Together with them. So if you think there's a big time gap, you're missing it. Together with them, those who are still breathing when that trumpet goes off, those together with them who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In Jerusalem? On the ground? Uh-uh-uh. That's later. To meet the Lord in the air. There. Then we will be with the Lord. How long, church? How long? Say it loud. I like that word. 
So encourage each other with these words. Did it work? Did I encourage you? Now, read verse 23 again. 1 Corinthians 15. There's an order to the resurrection. Christ was raised at the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. You can't say you don't know. Because he wrote it down. There's a lot of detail in here. So what comes after that? What comes after the rapture? Let's just say, by the way, if you say, if you say to me, and you've heard me say it multiple times, you come on to argue with me and say, well, you know, preacher, that word rapture is not in the Bible. I'd say, you're right. It's not. It's caught up. And tell me your next argument. What's the difference? Are you worried about the word or are you worried about the event? Those are caught up. And by the way, if you go back to uh, one of the original English translations, it is rapture just not in our modern translations. So, what comes after that? Let's say that one day there's this loud, let's just say that for the sake of discussion, because it just makes me real happy to talk about it, let's say it's in June of this year, and there's a loud shout, and there's a voice of the archangel, and there's a trumpet blast, and Jesus comes into the clouds, and he calls up the, the dust from the graves. If he can make Adam from dust, he can recreate anyone from dust. He specializes in it. He's going to raise the dust. He's going to reunite the souls and the spirits with their human body. They will be human flesh, eternal human flesh, like Jesus after the resurrection. And they will move from the clouds to the wedding supper of the Lamb in the kingdom of heaven. And what comes after that? The great tribulation. All hell breaks loose on earth. I believe the tribulation comes after the first resurrection because these resurrected ones are dead in Christ from the church age. The Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation and then I can read to you verse 24 now, 1 Corinthians 15. And after that, the end will come. When he will turn the kingdom of, over to God, when who? When Jesus will turn the kingdom over to God the Father having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign. Where? Now see, I'm convinced that reign is the millennial reign of Christ on the present earth. For Christ must reign until something happens. What's the something? Until he humbles all of his enemies under his feet. I believe that will happen in the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. And the last enemy to be destroyed, anybody want to take a guess? Is death. For the scriptures say God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not mean God himself who gave Christ his authority. Will God the Father ever be under the authority of Jesus the Son? No. No. Then, notice he says then. There's an order. When all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God who gave his Son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. I believe Christ will reign and humble his enemies on this earth for a thousand years before the final judgment. It will be in that final judgment that all death will end. I want you to think about that for just a moment. All death will end. Death will finally be destroyed forever after Satan is cast into hell 
and the new heaven and the new earth are revealed. No more death. No more crying for the old order of things is gone. Now comes one of the mysteries in the scripture. A lot of people have struggled with verse 29. If the dead were not raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? <clears throat> is Paul telling the church to be baptized for those who have died? If they have not been baptized. Now somebody who reads this, they might think, Paul is actually saying that we should be baptized for the dead. So let's say that your granddaddy never got baptized and you know he never got baptized and you're traumatized spiritually because you might not get to see your daddy in the kingdom of heaven. So you go get baptized for your granddaddy. Is that how it works? I'm going to read again, okay? Because y'all give me one of those looks. If the dead will not be raised. Then Paul says, then what's the point of there being of people being baptized for those who are dead? So can you already read into this that people in Corinth are baptizing people for dead people? Okay, that's what's happening. In case you're struggling. In Corinth, obviously, people were being baptized for their grandparents or somebody. All right? Why do it unless the dead were someday rise again? I don't think that his point, that that's his point at all, because this spiritual concept appears nowhere else in the Scripture. If you, if you want to search the Bible all the way through and find where somebody should be baptized for somebody who's already died, this is the only place you could even stretch and find that. Were the people of Corinth doing this baptizing for the dead? And was Paul illustrating this strange practice to reveal that even though many of them deny a bodily resurrection, they still have such a practice of being baptized for the dead. How does chapter 15 start? It starts by people in the church not believing in the resurrection of the dead. What's his point? His point is some of y'all are practicing spiritual rituals that allude to a resurrection that you then later deny. That's what he's doing. Will everyone accept, so that, that, that's the end of that. I'm not going any deeper than that. Will everyone accept this good news as good news? No. There is another spirit that we find ourselves in the midst of this great spiritual war between the two spirits. Verse 30, we'll close out chapter 15. You know what? This battery is dying. And that is... The signal. Hold on. You know why the battery's dying? Because I did four services this weekend and I didn't change the batteries. <laughs> Verse 30. And why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? Okay. If there is no resurrection from the dead, why should we risk ourselves hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. 
This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus? If there will be no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink for tomorrow we die. Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. If there's no resurrection, then why keep fighting? If there's no resurrection, why are you here tonight? If there's no resurrection, then you know what we should do? We should eat, drink, and be merry. You know, we should. We should eat, drink, and be merry. Like the rest of the world, we should eat, drink, and be merry. Think carefully. Stop sinning. Because some of you don't know at all. You don't know God at all. That's what he's saying to the church. You think they would like to hear that? Some of you don't know God at all. He's writing this to a church. Don't only. Can I give you some counsel tonight? We wrap up. Don't only, don't only hang out with people that make withdrawals from your life. Do we need to hang out some with people who make withdrawals from our life? Yeah. You need some people around you that also make deposits. Bad company corrupts good character. So I'm going to give you some counsel. You need to have some friends who make deposits in your lives, not just those who make withdrawals. I'm going to stop here for tonight, and here comes the teaser for our final session. Do you want to know what this resurrected body will be like? Next week, we'll finish chapter 15 and finish 16, in which that will be revealed. You're talking about a grand finale? It's one thing to believe in the resurrection of the dead. It's another thing to know what your body will be like when you get resurrected. Read ahead if you want to. <laughs> Father, tonight we give you thanks for the resurrection of the dead. We understand there's an order. First, Jesus died, and he raised the first of a harvest. We are that harvest. And for that, we say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.